This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello, this is the Russell Moore Podcast, and I'm him, and we are continuing today in our first word series through the Bible's first book, Genesis, and seeking there the kingdom of Christ. Before we get started, one of the things that helps is if you go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you listen to this and leave a review if you like this. It it helps other people to find it. I want us to get started today uh, by talking about ghosts. And the reason that I'm thinking about ghosts is because I happened to see this review in the New York Times book review the other day of a, a book about a haunted house. Not read the book, I just read the review. And the first line of the review said this, if the existence of a ghost is proof of an afterlife, then no one can argue that ghost stories are not ultimately optimistic. And I read that and said, how do you, how do you figure? I mean, obviously, I believe in a life uh, after death, but that doesn't mean that uh, a ghostly existence is necessarily good news, not optimistic about uh, one's future prospects if one is, in fact, living in a haunted house. And I thought about what C.S. Lewis said about why we fear ghosts. And he said, it's, it's not right to say that we dislike corpses, dead bodies, because we're afraid of ghosts. Instead, it's the other way around. We're afraid of ghosts because we don't like corpses. We don't like the idea of death. And so ghosts, the, the horror that comes along with ghosts, he said, is associated with all of those things that, that remind us of death, coffins and shrouds and, and, and so forth. And so there is something about a particular kind of life after death that is not good news, but is in fact terrifying. So think of the short story, Monkey's Paw, uh, about the, the monkey's paw that gives a wish and the wish being that a loved one would come back to life. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read or seen one of the film adaptations of the monkey's paw, uh, the person comes back to life, but the person is a is a reanimated corpse. That's not what someone's wishing for when they're wishing for a loved one to come back. So if you think of why ghosts are terrifying, it's the lingering of death, or think about it in even a more literal sense, zombies, reanimated corpses that are motivated by this uh, insatiable appetite. That is not a good picture of life, whether life now or life after death. As a matter of fact, it's terrifying. What I would argue is that what scares us in our most terrified moments about those things is exactly what we see happening here in Genesis chapter 3. And so I'd like for us to start off reading with verse 6 and read down through verse 24. This is after the conversation between Uh, Eve and the serpent. And the word of God says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that 
the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she gave also some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. We, we talked about that verse last week, but it continues. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Now, There are a number of implications of uh, what's taking place in this passage of Scripture, implications that are going to reverberate throughout most of the rest of the Bible. And I want us to to sort of walk through them and see what the the results were uh, from this fall that the Scripture records. The first one that I want to talk about is guilt before God. Now, I think this is something that sometimes people want to underemphasize because uh, there are some people who will say in in some places of the church, there's been an overemphasis upon the judicial uh, side of of the biblical message. And, And that's true. There are places where the judicial aspects of both sin and of the gospel are emphasized in such a way that the relational uh, aspects are underemphasized. Uh, That's true, but that doesn't mean that that judicial aspect is not important and and shouldn't be emphasized because it's emphasized in the Bible itself. Uh, There there are other people who will say, well, the wrath of God 
can be emphasized in such a way that it overshadows the the love of God. And that's true. Also, there are some people who uh, believe in the wrath of God and, and find themselves unable to believe in the love of God, at least for themselves. That is true. And there's a, a kind of hellfire and brimstone preaching that speaks of salvation as essentially a place to hide from a God who's angry at you. That is true, but that doesn't mean that the wrath of God does not exist, that the judgment of God does not exist, that objective guilt before God does not exist. As a matter of fact, the scripture talks about this uh, repeatedly throughout the Bible, and that's one of the things that's taking place here. It's not the only thing, but it is one of the things that's happening here. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, God says to Adam and Eve. That's the judgment of God. That is a a God who is the one who is the ultimate arbiter between good and evil. What's taking place in this eating of uh, the fruit of the tree, of the knowledge of good and evil, is humanity taking upon itself that ultimate judgment between good and evil. So if you think about even the way that the scripture has been talking up to this point. God created and God said it was good. God created and God said it was good. God said it is not good for the man to be alone. Humanity wants to have that judging function here for themselves over and against the judgment of God. And not only that, but what you see happening here is the joining to an already existing rebellion. Now, I know, again, there are all sorts of people when they come to the Genesis text who will say, well, we're, we're imputing the devil uh, into this passage, but this isn't the devil. This is a serpent. This is a beast. I think the rest of the scripture makes very clear that this is uh, the devil, that this is the voice of the very same tempter and accuser who comes after all of us. And so what's happening here is a fall, but it's not the first fall. It's the first fall of the human order, but there's been another fall in the angelic order. And so that's the reason why when Jesus is talking about hell, he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the lake of fire prepared for, who? For the devil and his angels. So what's happening here is that you have humanity listening to a beast. You also have humanity listening to an angel that has rebelled against the order that God has for angels, which is, as we see in the rest of Scripture, we don't know everything that angels do, but we know that they're ministering spirits, and we know that often we see angels bringing messages from God. So if you contrast what's happening here with what happens, for instance, uh, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and speaks to her and says, you're blessed because you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Her response is to question this, not to question whether, not to question the Word of God, 
not to question God, but to question this angelic messenger to see whether or not it was from God. How can these things be? And when Mary is uh, understanding of the fact that this is a message from God, she submits herself to the will of God. That's not what's taking place here with Adam and Eve. Instead, you have people who are questioning the word of God and taking the word of a fallen angel, of uh, the serpent. And so there is guilt now before God that we're going to talk about a little bit uh, later on. But this that the Apostle Paul talks about, for instance, in Romans chapter 5, about the reign of death that comes from this one man. So guilt before God. But a second thing is alienation from one another. As soon as the man eats of this fruit, uh, the scripture says that they're, they're naked and they're ashamed. Remember before, they were naked before each other and they were unashamed. Now they're, they're hiding themselves behind uh, vegetation. And not only that, you're going to see later on that they're going to start blaming each other. And so there's a disruption of what God created to be one flesh, this organic unity, this uh, common mission. And I can't help but think every time that I read this passage of a woman by the name of Alice von Hildebrand, who said, nothing drives two people apart like sinning together. And uh, I think we have, we have seen that. Uh, Almost all of us have seen that over and over and over again. People in a conspiracy together in committing some sin often, uh, almost always, end up alienated from each other, even in the thing that they, they did in order to be close to one another. Now, we don't know the psychology of what's going on in Adam's mind, but There are all sorts of reasons why Adam may have taken of the fruit. It could be that he was as convinced as Eve was uh, by the words of of the serpent, just as uh, taken from the very beginning with the the fact that the fruit was able to make one wise and and able to make one as, as a god could be. Or it could be that Adam was reluctant but he wanted to he wanted to be with his his wife. I want to be with you, uh, whichever direction you go. We don't know, uh, but either way, the end result is that they end up with a disruption against each other. And when Adam is confronted by God, uh, the, one of the first things he says is, "The woman that you gave to me, she gave me of the fruit, and I ate." So there's this this blaming of the other. You, you, you see this in one of, I think, uh, one of the most hilarious passages uh, of Scripture to me. When Moses comes down from the mountain and he hears uh, the dancing and the celebrating of the children of Israel, and they're around this golden calf uh, that Aaron had made. He took all of the jewelry He had it melted down. He created this golden calf and said to them, behold, the Lord your God. And when Moses said, what happened here? Aaron says, essentially, I put all these these bracelets and earrings, uh, melted them down, and out came this golden calf uh, that you see here. There's a, a blaming of the people 
There's a blaming of these impersonal forces uh, taking place, a, a seeking and evasion of responsibility in this alienation from each other. And then thirdly, I think we see here shame before God. The man and the woman are not just ashamed in front of each other. They're also ashamed in the face of God so that they hide themselves, the text says here, when when God was present in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid themselves in, uh, in the vegetation there. Now, this is really important because, again, I think the serpent here is the devil. And I think one of the things that we see in Scripture is the devil working in two different ways that complement each other. The first way is through deception. So we talked about that last time. You you see what the serpent is doing is he's minimizing the the consequences here. you, You won't die in the day that you eat of it. Instead, what you're going to get is a great benefit. But then the minute that they do Uh, join in this rebellion with the serpent, that they find themselves ashamed in front of the presence of God. As a matter of fact, the shame leads to fear. So Adam says, I was afraid because I was ashamed. So there's a psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson, uh, that I heard uh, talking about shame. He wrote a book, uh, The Soul of Shame, that's really, uh, really a fascinating and important book. But I heard him talking on a podcast with a friend of mine, Ian Cron, and he said, what shame is, is it's this, it's not just a, an emotional response, but it's, it's an emotional, physical uh, response that takes place. And what's going on with shame is this idea that says, you're going to leave me and I'm going to watch you leave me. So tied up with shame, it's not just that I'm, not, not just that I feel guilty for what I've done. And it's not just, as, as people rightly point out, uh, guilt is not just a bad thing that you have done, but shame is the sense of you're a bad person. It, that's all true, but it's tied up with this idea of abandonment. So what Thompson says in that book is that what is needed for somebody to be liberated from shame is for somebody to confirm to them that the action is as bad as they think or worse, but I'm not going to leave. Now, as soon as I read that, that was something that maybe previously in my life, I might have, uh, I might have just passed over. But as soon as I saw that, I thought about a situation where I had handled a situation wrongly. And uh, as I was reflecting on it, the more that I just felt I failed in the way that I handled the situation, I didn't minister in this situation in a way that would bring about good. Instead, I responded out of uh, kind of anger, and I responded in a way that just made things worse. And it was just gnawing at me at, at some of the things that I had said to somebody that I shouldn't have said, I didn't mean, but I had said those things. And so I would talk to people, and people would say, oh, don't be so hard on yourself. It's not that big of a deal. And it wasn't until I met somebody who said, let's suppose that your reaction 
was as wrong as you think it is. And it probably was. Probably worse than you think it is. What now? That is what was liberating. Because you're saying, okay, when when people are saying to you, this is all right, this is okay, then they don't really understand what's going on. But somebody who really understands the problem and says, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to be with you through this. That is how, how shame is broken. Now, that's really important because what you see taking place here is not just the shame before God, but also the grace of God in seeking out the question there, Adam, where are you? God knows where he is. He's asking this question, who told you that you were naked? He's asking these questions to reveal, uh, not for himself, he knows, but to reveal to Adam and Eve what has taken place. And where are they? They're cringing and they're hiding in the bushes. So it's exactly what the Apostle Paul's talking about in Romans chapter one, when he says that we we don't want to, in our natural fallen state, we don't want to acknowledge God as God, but instead, what do we do? We turn the creation into God's to be worshiped. So we, we hide behind the creation, hiding from the creator, and we hide behind different things. Uh, the, the, the reality, the common human phenomenon is not different except in the way that it manifests itself. So there are some people who hide behind um, unbelief and doubt and skepticism, and there are some people who hide behind a kind of crusading, uh, self-righteous sort of religion. There are people who hide behind the quest for pleasure. There are people who hide behind the quest for status or achievement, just all sorts of things. But we're all left to ourselves ultimately hiding from the face of God and trying to convince ourselves that God does not see us. Now, what's really important about this is, I think what what Leon Cass talks about in his commentary on Genesis is to say, notice the difference between the shame that Adam and Eve feel with each other and the shame that they feel before God. With one another, they hid only their, their genitals. Now, you, you, you think about the, if you have a, a children's uh, storybook or a children's uh, Sunday school uh, literature about Genesis 1 through 3, they'll always have uh, the, the man and the woman in Eden with like a strategically placed uh, tree limb or uh, giraffe or, or, or something to where there's, and, and rightly so, nobody wants uh, children looking at nude Adam and Eve uh, for obvious reasons. Uh but that reality, that, that hiding of what we call the private parts, uh, that's what takes place here after the fall with one another. But before God, it's more than that. Before God, they are hiding their entire being. That's coming right out of that act of eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Notice also, it's not just the shame. Then God starts Uh, walking through what the consequences of the fall are. And there there are a number of them. Uh, One of them is spiritual warfare. God uh, speaks to the serpent. Once once Adam has uh, confessed in his broken kind of way what took place, 
God puts a curse on the serpent and says, you shall eat the dust. So same sort of language that's going to be used later in the prophets about the nations shall, uh, shall eat the, the dust. And he says, the seed of the woman will crush your head. You, you'll strike at his heel, but he will crush your head. So what's being set up here in Genesis chapter 3 is a vision of reality, of a, a universe uh, that is, as, as the Apostle John will put it, lies under the sway of the wicked one and is being liberated. But it can't be liberated by Adam. It, it can't be liberated by Eve because they're under the domination of the serpent. They are rightly accused by him. They, they are now his subjects. And the same is going to be true for their children and their children's children and their children's children. And we're going to see that later on. What has to happen is that a human being who is not guilty, not ashamed, can stand forthrightly before God and is unaccusable, has to be the one to dethrone the serpent. God announces this. He announces also a frustration of the mission. But again, there's grace of God in here too, because he, he talks about these different aspects of the mission that he's, that he's already given to them, the bearing of children. You shall be fruitful and multiply. He says there will be pain in, in childbearing. You shall bring forth bread from the ground, so God's already said you have to be fed. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to provide food for you. You're going to need nutrition. He, he's already said I've taken you from the ground. So there's an organic unity between you and the rest of the creation. But he says now there's going to be frustration. You're going to do this by the sweat of your brow. You're going to do this in a way where there will be thorns and thistles. So I think what's happening here is not that God has said, uh, I'm going to put uh, thorns and thistles out into the ground in order to, to frustrate you. I think, I think what God's saying here is that you're not going to have the sort of natural dominion over creation that you previously would have had as Adam pioneered out from the garden into the rest of the world, the world was designed to respond to Adam immediately and as a, a sort of recognition of her king. So if you come to Romans chapter 8, for instance, you see the fact that the creation is groaning and the creation is groaning in childbirth. He's using language that, that evokes and, and echoes back uh, to this. That sort of language, we think of it simply as analogy and simply as a, a literary um, uh, artifice. But if you look at the way that the Psalms will speak about the, the way that creation is ruled personally, and intended to be ruled by humanity, that is disrupted. So there's a sense in which the creation longing for the sons of God has the response to humanity almost that the demons have in the book of Acts when they say, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? 
We don't know who you are. We don't recognize your voice as you are shepherding us. We we hear in that uh, the voice of the serpent. But even then, God says, I'm not disrupting the mission. I'm simply frustrating the mission. I'm allowing the, the, the mission to be frustrated. So you will have pain in childbearing. We, we see that part. But what we don't see is you will bear children. You will be fruitful and multiply. Uh, we see the, the thorns and the thistles and the frustration of the ground and the sweat of the brow, but you will have bread. You will work the ground. So the, the mission continues. This is the graciousness of God. And then you see death. The wages of sin, Paul says, is death. And the writer of Hebrews says that the fundamental human problem is slavery to the devil. And how does the devil have power over us? It is through fear of death. So what God is doing here is sending the man and the woman away from the tree of life. Now, you look at this, there are a lot of people who, when they read this passage, what they see is a, a punitive God and and even a, a sort of capricious God. I, I had an atheist uh, say to me one time, uh, he said, I can't worship and love a God like we see portrayed in Genesis and elsewhere. He said, he said because a God who would do this, th- he said, this is like Uh, my saying to my two-year-old child, don't go near this mousetrap, and then hiding and putting my child's favorite Lego toy on the mousetrap and having him get caught in it. That's what God's doing. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and then he catches them in this. That's, That's not what's going on here. And when God says, you're going to leave from Eden, this is not God saying, uh, I'm uh, upset and angry, and I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Instead, what you see here is notice why God is sending them out. God says, now they have eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They know good from evil. They are like us in that way. So the serpent was half right or partly right when he says, you shall be as God, knowing good from evil. And what that means is that if they continue to eat from the tree of life, which is to give to them eternal life, that means that the condition that they're in now will never end. So what God is doing in sending them out from the garden is merciful. Is it judgment? Yes, it's judgment. They, they are not in the kind of fellowship that they were with God. They, they don't have access to the tree of life. That's judgment. But in the judgment, there is also mercy because a, a life that is ongoing under the reign of sin and death is a zombie existence. It's it's a living death. It's hell. And God says, no, I'm not going to do that. And as he does this, he gives them clothes of of skin. He, He enables them to cover their shame, but not with vegetation, but with 
animal coverings. Now, there are some people, again, who will say, oh, you, you make too much out of uh, the fact that there's the shedding of blood in these animal uh, coverings, in these, these clothes of, of skin as opposed to the vegetation. I don't think so. Because I think we're going to see later on in Genesis chapter 4 what the exact difference is between offering up vegetation and offering up of uh, the shedding of blood and of life. I do think that what God is doing here is prefiguring something about the need for blood sacrifice, the, the need for covering with blood sacrifice. And he makes those clothes for, for them. He sends them away from the tree of life in order that he may ultimately redeem the world. So when you see this, when you come to the fact that there's a cherubim with a fiery sword guarding the way to the tree of life, What you see there is exactly what John chapter 3 says. God did not send his son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that through him the world might be saved. The, The promise that God has given to Adam and to Eve, your offspring will strike back and crush the head of this serpent will happen. And also in this, you see the the fatherliness of God and the, the shepherding of God. Adam, where are you? This, this ought to remind you exactly of what Jesus talks about when he says the good shepherd leaves behind the 99 and seeks out the one, asks, where are you in your shame and in your hiding and in your guilt? And he gives them a word of judgment. He tells them the truth serpent wouldn't tell them the truth. So now they're, they're here in accusation. God tells them the truth about their plight, about their situation, and he pledges to ultimately redeem them. Now, you look at this and you say, how is this ever uh, coming together? And, and we see that in the life of the Lord Jesus, who is God. He is, he is our God, that that promise that the scripture gives, I will be your God and you will be my people. In Jesus, you have both of those. You have God and humanity. You have God and his people. You have Emmanuel, God is with us. And you have somebody who is taking upon himself, Paul says in Galatians chapter three, the curse. He's taking upon himself the curse of the law. And so when you look at the account of Jesus from Gethsemane to Golgotha, you see all sorts of echoes back here to the the collapse of Eden. You have the sweating of blood taking place. You have the, the tearing of bread in the upper room. This is my body that is broken for you. It's bread taken, cultivated from the ground. You have a crown of thorns placed upon his head, the, the, the very picture of the cursed creation, of the cursed ground. You have uh, Jesus stripped naked before the onlookers, including his mother, and before God. He, he's being shamed and he's being treated as guilty. 
He takes all of that upon himself and he conquers it all with the offering of his blood and with his resurrection from the dead. Why is Jesus raised from the dead? It's because the accusation against him is false. That the power that the devil has is that his deception is false. What he tells us will happen with our sin doesn't happen. But his accusations are true. The the accusations are true. The devil is accurate and telling the truth when he brings an accusation against you. Uh, that's that's one of the reasons why uh, sometimes when uh, when an accusation is made against us, the the closer it is to the truth, the more bothersome it is. There are some exceptions to that. That analogy can can uh, go off the tracks. But but generally speaking, if if somebody says, "I think that uh, you're part of a a secret terrorist cell trying to uh, overtake the United States government or whatever," you're you're, you're going to say this person's crazy. Uh, unless that's who you are. Uh, you say that person's crazy. But if they say something that in any way circles around something that is true about you or that you're afraid is true about you, then there's a sense of, oh no, I've been found out. Jesus here has no indictment against him at the judgment seat. The guilt that he bears and the shame that he bears and the curse that he bears and the judgment that he bears is for others, is for the rest of the human race, not for himself. And he's he's raised from the dead. And when he's raised from the dead, the scripture says that the angels are there, just as you have an angel here guarding the way to Eden. You have an angel in this garden who's who's not guarding the empty tomb. The empty tomb is empty. He's simply announcing that it is empty. So what is Jesus doing? What Jesus does is he, as Ephesians chapter one says, everything is ultimately to be summed up in him. Jesus puts the world back together and he puts people back together. He is the reconciliation. So you see this after his resurrection from the dead, Jesus is immediately about this project of of reintegrating that that has fallen apart. He, he seeks out Simon Peter, who's gone to Galilee, is ashamed. He's so ashamed that he's he's weeping when he sees Jesus after he's denied him. He goes and he he restores him. Then he sends out the Spirit at Pentecost and he he brings together Jew and Gentile. And now you have Jesus who as fully God and fully human, stands as a mediator for us, standing before God. So that as Paul writes to Timothy, there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus stands before God with no guilt, no shame, perfect righteousness, and when God says to this Adam, where are you? The answer, according to the book of Hebrews, is here I am and the children that you have given to me. That's good news. That's good news. So God knows who you really are. God knows everything that there is to know about you. God knows you better than you know yourself. 
You're not hiding anything from God. You may hide it from yourself. You're not hiding it from God. You may hide it from other people. You're not hiding it from God. God knows all of those things. God does not in any way excuse or call those things good. God is perfectly just and perfectly holy, and he loves you. Enough to send his son to die for you. And if you're in Christ, you're so hidden in Christ that the curse that belongs to you, that ultimate judgment, you have already been through it. So that when you're praying, the reason that we pray in Jesus' name is not because that's some superstitious sort of thing to put at the end of a prayer. It is because we're acknowledging, God, I can't come before you on my own. I'm unholy. I'm broken. I'm cursed. I'm guilty. I'm ashamed. I'm coming to you through Jesus Christ who stands before you with the offering of his own blood. And his life is now my life. That's true legally. And he's making it true uh, in in terms of our life. He's conforming us, Paul says, into the image of Christ. And as he's doing that, what's he doing? He's crushing that snake's head. Crushing it. That's good news. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you haven't yet subscribed, uh, go ahead and do that on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher or Pocket Casts or wherever you listen. And if you're listening on a smartphone, tap or swipe the cover art and you'll find the show notes, including some details that you might have missed. And we'll pick up right here in Genesis the next time with another first word. This is Russell Moore. Onward.